0: listeners it's sam here again and just the usual shout out for our brilliant sponsors before this week's show paces ahead have courses for the start of 2024 and listeners here's a possible sweetener for you i will be there at their first course of 2024 that's the 16th to the 19th of january please do come along and say hi if you catch me it would be great to meet some of you if you're there but there is also a course the following week from the 20th to the 23rd of January for those of you sitting in the first diet of 2024. Not only that, but they also have courses lined up for May as well, the 20th to the 23rd of May and the 28th to the 31st of May. I highly recommend booking on early to avoid disappointment. They very regularly get oversubscribed. If you can't make a course though, past tests have got you covered with their market leading online revision PACES resource. I think most PACES sitters would agree this is more or less essential to have to complement your ward based preparation. So to get access, just click any of the links in the show notes labeled Pass Test. But enough on that for now, let's get started on this week's episode. Welcome to this episode of the Pre-PACES podcast with me Dr Sam Williams and I'm delighted this week to report more PACES success stories. Avranil got in touch who is an IMT in the Mersey Deanery who told us he listened religiously on his daily commutes and recently found out he passed his PACES. So a big virtual high five heading your way Avranil. In this week's episode, we are joined by Mr. Steve Lash, ophthalmic surgeon who helps us take a squinted look at all of the fundoscopy favorites that are most likely to come up in paces, as well as covering off some of the features of a patient presenting with gradual visual loss. Watch out for Steve's Quiz the Consultant this week, which ended up being less of a quickfire quiz and more of a rambling chat about his specialist subject of sports psychology. This is a truly fascinating subject, so look out for that towards the end of the show. But without further ado, let's get into it. Welcome to the Pre-Paces podcast, and today we are talking about I eyes So welcome aboard, landlubbers, to the good ship Paces. I'm your first mate, Dr. Sam Williams, but captaining the ship today, we are joined by the first ever surgeon to feature on the podcast. We're delighted to welcome today, consultant ophthalmic surgeon at University Hospital Southampton, Mr. Steve Lash. Now, I think it will be fair to say that What Steve doesn't know about looking after your eyes probably is not worth knowing. After initially training as an optometrist, Steve attended medical school in Southampton, trained in ophthalmology in and around the south coast of the UK. During his time, he's also attended an MBE at the Southampton Business School before taking a fellowship in uh, retinovitreal surgery in Melbourne, Australia. I could continue to read a list of his phenomenal achievements in that time, but that would probably take up the whole of the rest of the podcast. Needless to say, he's since been working as a consultant at University Hospital Southampton since 2010, and has been kind enough to give up some of his valuable time this afternoon. So, Steve, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you very much for having me. Just to correct you, actually, the uh, I haven't had an MBE yet, but maybe after this I will. But I've <laughs> I've had an MBA. Uh, they're kind of similar. They're kind of similar. Don't MBA,
0: fantastic. And not only that, but Steve will be taking on our customary regular feature quiz, the consultant, the quiz where every consultant who comes on the show chooses a specialist topic of their own choosing with a caveat that it can't be to do with medicine. So we'll touch on it more at the end of the show. But as a little tease ahead, Steve, what have you chosen as your specialist subject?
1: Well, following a series of emails where we were struggling to find a special subject that was suitable, I seem to have chosen sports psychology. um, But the reason for that is because I'm trying to write a book on surgery, and that's one tiny aspect of it. So let's see
0: where we go with that. Fantastic. So more coming up on that at the end of the show. But now I think let's get started with the focus for this week's episode, where we're looking at gradual visual loss with a focus on fundoscopy. So just to start off, we always start these episodes talking about the, the likely stations where our listeners may encounter a patient presenting with gradual visual loss or even possibly have to perform uh, the, the tricky uh, clinical examination of fundoscopy. And so in a PACES style scenario, this it could either likely come up in a station two, and we're going to cover the history taking aspects of a systematic approach to taking an ophthalmic history from a patient. We're also going to cover the aspects from a neurological examination. For example the lead in may be something like please perform a focused examination of this patient's eyes or a station five where you have a focused combination of the two. A focused history followed by a focused examination where you may be expected to perform fundoscopy on a patient and we're going to be talking about a number of different diagnoses which may come up in any or all of these encounters. So to start off we're going to kick off with some history taking, Steve, and and many, many medical trainees will find the prospect of approaching a patient with visual loss quite daunting, but it's something that you see and deal with every day. And so what advice would you give to our listeners when conducting a, a systematic approach in taking a history from a patient who's presenting with visual loss?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the first uh, interesting thing about visual loss is that a lot of patients aren't going to know that they've lost vision. And now that sounds absolutely mad, but I don't know if you remember from my fourth year lectures, but if if you're in the car at the moment, I wouldn't suggest you do this. But if you're at home, then let's just do a couple of things that may shed a bit of light on this subject. It's maybe not as obvious as you might think. So if you, you're you sitting in your chair and you stare across the room at a clock face or a, a spine of a book, you can read that without any problem. So clearly uh, anyone who finds that they can't read that book or it's blurred but It may have visual loss it may be grayed out it may be distorted it may it may be out of focus but if you now look about a meter to the side of the bookcase or the clock you'll be aware that now you cannot see the detail um, on the spine of the book or the clock so our peripheral vision is very very blurred it's, it's black and white um, and so a lot of patients aren't aware of losing their peripheral vision so I guess the first thing to say about visual loss is that if it's central, they're almost certainly going to have some symptoms. But if it's peripheral, they almost certainly won't, especially if it's something like glaucoma, which is slowly progressive. They're almost certainly not going to wear. They've lost vision. Um, So just bear that in mind uh, when you're doing an examination. If you're expecting someone to have a gradual peripheral visual loss, they're unlikely to tell you that, except in very rare instances. So in terms of visual loss, I would always um, break it down initially into central visual loss and peripheral visual loss with the caveats I've just explained. Um, So have they got blurred vision? If they have got blurred vision, can they get it clear with spectacles? So, for instance, I'm 51 this year, so I'm struggling with my reading vision. It's quite normal that you'll struggle to read as you get older. That's absolutely fine. Um, if they're walking in with spectacles on have a look at their specs so if you can see all of their face within the lenses then they're short-sighted so they're going to be great close up without specs but they'll need specs for distance so if someone is undiagnosed short sight they're going to tell you the world is very blurred but they will be able to read so in your history try and work out whether it's distance or reading So in terms of peripheral visual loss, as I say, it's extremely difficult often to diagnose that you may get someone saying that they're bumping into things. And in that case, you would have fairly advanced peripheral field loss in order to have you know bumping into things. Heminopic defects, they may well be aware that their vision is tunnelling, that they can't see out the corners of their eyes. But as I say, peripheral visual loss is tricky unless They've got acute visual loss. Now acute visual loss peripherally is most commonly due to a retinal detachment and they will have a gray shadow. So a positive scotoma, they can see it and they will see that as a gray shadow progressing over their vision. In terms of generalized visual loss, so we've talked about blurred vision, uh, but also things can become very, very misty. So a bleed in the eye, which may be common in diabetes, will give you very, very misty vision. So uh, they'll describe floaters that coalesce and then everything's sort of hazy.
0: So one of the things which I think occasionally comes up time and again is painful or painless loss of vision. So what what relevance does that play in our in our history taking of these patients?
1: So painless loss of vision, these are going to be the most common causes. And again, we can just go through a whole list of these. But again, if we think about central visual loss, elderly patient, macular degeneration would be the most common cause. The most common cause overall would be cataract, causing a general misting of vision. But beware, you can get what's called, you're not allowed to say these offensive things anymore, but second sight of the aged, where the lens becomes more dense and they regain reading vision, having lost it for years. And these are all painless. When it comes to painful loss of vision, um, then you're really looking at things like uh, an ulcer on the cornea. So this would generally be young people. There's a history of contact lens where the eye will be extremely painful and vision goes very, very quickly. Things like angle closure glaucoma, Um, so these will be the people who, when you look at their faces with their specks on, their eyes look big, so they're long-sighted, so they have small eyes, and as their lens grows throughout life, the angle shallows inside the eye, and eventually when they're watching Coronation Street one night with a mid-dilated pupil, the whole thing blocks off, the angle closes, and the pressure goes sky high, so they have extremely painful eyes and nausea and vomiting so people have had their abdomens open before for angle closure glaucoma other causes of visual loss that may be associated with pain so g- uh, giant cell arthritis would be one not to miss but that pain isn't in the eye that pain is in the temple jaw claudication etc and they get a, uh, a painless loss of vision so the eye itself doesn't hurt at all
0: Brilliant. So that's a broad brushstroke of the type of systematic approach that you might take in uh, assessing someone with visual loss initially. But my feeling is this is more likely to come up in a, uh, a station five where probably they're looking for you to examine the patient at some point. So what advice would you give to our listeners, our medical trainees in terms of a systematically approaching uh, a patient presenting with visual loss?
1: OK, so I think I'd start with um, visual loss in one eye or both eyes. Um, So if it's visual loss in both eyes, you're thinking more post-chiasm, neurological, pituitary, tumours, infarcts, things like that. And you'll be gearing up for a confrontation field for those. And often they spare detail vision. If it's central vision that's blurred, it's much more likely to be one eye. And then you're going to focus in on what could be causing visual loss in one eye. And the most common is going to be cataract, probably followed by macular degeneration. And they're both going to cause blurred vision. Macular degeneration will also cause distorted vision. So it's not just loss of vision, the vision changes.
0: Brilliant. And there's a couple of other diagnoses which we're going to touch on, which are maybe less common than the cataracts and uh, macular degeneration, as, as you've mentioned. I thought we'd cover five in total through the course of the episode. So we're going to touch on cataracts chronic glaucoma rather than uh, acute angle, age, uh, age-related macular degeneration, diabetic retinopathy, and then finally one which is very rare but that seems to come up disproportionately in paces, which is retinitis pigmentosa. So why don't we kick off with cataracts? And I imagine I'd, I read somewhere that, the cataracts, that a cataract operation is the most commonly performed operation worldwide. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, that sounds entirely reasonable, absolutely, Yep. And so maybe you can explain the absolute basics for us, Steve. So what exactly is a cataract, and, and how do these patients often present?
1: So um, the way I tend to explain it to patients, and forgive me if I explain it to you doctors like this as well, is that the, the cataract is the lens of the eye, and it sits behind the coloured part of the eye, and think of it like a chocolate smarty. So it has a coating and a milk chocolate centre. And cataract is where that chocolate starts to go hazy. Now, that can go hazy in the middle, nucleus sclerotic. It can go hazy in the mid-periphery in spokes, like a cortical. It can go very rapidly hazy right at the back of the capsular, so-called posterior subcapsular cataract, which are usually associated with um, steroid use. Um, and so the var- But the vast majority are very, very slowly progressive. So in order to remove the cataract, we make incisions on the surface of the eye, introducing a risk of infection at around 1 in 2,000. Uh, We then, to mix my metaphors, peel the surface of the grape in order to get access to the chocolate. And then we blow fluid around the capsule and the center of the lens, freeing it up. And then that's removed with ultrasound so that you end up with an empty bag. There's a risk of the capsular bag rupturing at about less than one in 100. And then we put a new plastic lens which opens up inside that bag. So it, it sits within the original bag of the lens. Um, Those lenses are generally single focus lenses but technology is improving all the time now and certainly privately there are extended range lenses, multifocal lenses and ongoing work onto accommodating lenses. The surgery is topical anesthesia so in and out the same morning takes anything from 5 minutes to 15 minutes to do uh, and recovery is very
0: rapid fantastic and so the symptoms which the patients will often present is is more more like a central blurred vision or or that depends on where the cataract exactly is
1: yeah so a posterior subcapsula is at the nodal point of the eye which is the point at which all light must pass so these are rapidly progressive and they cause a lot of glare Um, so glare is an important symptom with cataracts halos as well Um, And they interfere with distance and reading, vision. whereas most cataracts are very, very slowly progressive. So they get new specs, but they can't quite see as well. They get new specs and they can't quite see as well. And usually the optometrist will say that you've got cataract. Um, That may cause the prescription to shift in a short-sighted direction or may not affect the prescription at all. Um, And then as it gets to a level where they start getting interference with driving, especially at night with lights and glare and halos, then we would usually see them for surgery.
0: Brilliant. And I think one thing to touch on if a patient's presenting in a patient-style scenario like this is that it it would probably be too easy for the examiners to present you with a a random patient who just has has a cataract. It's not really the the medical registrar sort of responsibility to think about that. But one pointer, if you are presented with a patient who the lead-in states This person has gradual loss of vision. Please take a history and perform a focused examination. You might be thinking about diabetic patients because I believe, Steve, they're they're at higher risk of cataracts. And and the other thing you mentioned was steroid use as well. So thinking about wider things like do they have a Cushingoid appearance? Do they have central obesity? Are Are they visibly breathless? Could they have COPD possibly? And then more rare things which you may see in PACE is one of our recent previous episodes we've mentioned, myotonic dystrophy. And you can go back and listen to our episode on that. But again, a syndromic appearance of myotonic dystrophy may give something away that this person may be hiding a cataract if you examine them on fundoscopy, And as well, other syndromic conditions such as Down syndrome, Turner syndrome, all may indicate that you may be looking at a patient who could possibly have a cataract if you're then asked to perform a, a fundoscopic examination. And so Steve, when if the candidates are then required to do a fundoscopic examination, what may they find? So um,
1: I suspect that the visions will be given, that you won't be expected to check a vision uh, in the room, but have a look at the vision Um, And then the first thing to look at is the red reflex. So that gives very good information on the quality of light passing through the eye. Um, So in terms of cataracts, you may get a general graying of the uh, reflex. You may see the classic spokes of a cortical cataract. You may see a patch of really dark gray. So it's worth having a look at the red reflex and just moving left to right to see where the opacity is inside the eye. And then you've got the uh, option as well of just holding the the pen torch or the ophthalmoscope at an angle through the iris. You can light up the lens, and sometimes you can see it quite clearly. There it may look white or very yellow, um, especially in comparison to the other eye. And worth thinking about because obviously there is more to health than the eyes. I, I think um, <laughs> is that if you look at the red reflex and the the lens appears to be dislocated. So you'll see that you'll see the lens down and out or up and in then you may be thinking of things like marfans or homocystinuria um so a red reflex is a critical
0: first step brilliant in terms of fundoscopy because this is a lens pathology you may not actually expect to find much retinal pathology on on detailed examination
1: yeah and that's important because if the red reflex is almost non-existent I mean if they've got a hypermature cataract or a very dense posterior subcapsular cataract then you may not get a good view of the fundus anyway. And, and it's worth noting as well, actually, that while you've got the ophthalmoscope in your hand, you can be appropriate to do an RAPD, relative afferent pupillary defect, which is such a powerful tool um, for de- determining whether or not this person has refractive error and needs specs or they've got a, generally speaking, an optic nerve pathology. I don't know how useful it would be to go through that with your listeners and RAPD.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, why don't uh, if we can segue into that? Maybe you can describe what a what an RAPD is and uh, and how you would go about uh, assessing that.
1: Yeah. So the important thing is a relative. So it's between the two eyes. It's an afferent, not an efferent defect. So you are comparing the the passage of light through the system in each eye. So you would uh, the the thing to remember is that both pupils do the same thing at the same time. So just remember the rule of the pupil. That's very important. So what I what I would normally do is stand there in front of the students with my hands wide and my hands are my pupils, and I scrunch them into a ball to determine, you know, that 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 is constriction of the pupil. And I say, I shine 10 units of light into one eye, I get 10 units of constriction, fine. If I shine 10 units of light into one eye and look at the other eye, I still get 10 units of constriction because remember, both pupils do the same thing at the same time. So when you've done your direct and consensual reflex, you move to the other eye and do exactly the same. And then the trick is to have a nice bright light and then to swing your light from eye to eye. So if now we say the right eye has got glaucoma and 50 percent of the nerve is damaged. So if we shine 10 units of light in, only five units are going to get transferred back to the brain. So only five units of constriction in the eye that you shine the light in. But remember, the consensual reflex will also be five. Then you swing to the eye that's normal. Well, that's fully intact. So that will constrict 10. And the consensual, so in the eye that's poorly, also constricts 10. So when you swing back to the right eye, it will start to dilate. It's not dilating. It's just dilating in comparison to the other eye. So that's a relative afferent pupillary defect. I think that's a very, very good test to do, one that I will fall back on often. But you do need a nice bright light. And you want to hold the light in front of each eye, sort of count of two, and swap it quickly, count of two, and backwards and forwards.
0: Fantastic, and uh, I'm sure we're gonna we're gonna discuss uh, glaucoma in in just a moment. But yeah, I think this is the kind of thing where if a patient has uh, an RAPD which is long standing, then this is easily something which they could present, uh, present in paces as as a chronic sign, which is probably unlikely to change.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and that would go with things like vein occlusions, previous artery occlusions, anything that significantly damages the retina. Glaucoma would be another one. Would, would give you an rapd and, and a dense cataract won't give you an rapd even if it's one eye there's such convergence of photoreceptors that any light hitting the retina is enough to generate the the pupillary
0: response brilliant so since we've i think we've covered cataracts in probably as much detail as is required for paces so if we move on now to glaucoma and and like i said at the start we're covering acute sorry not acute we're covering open angle glaucoma so the chronic form yeah and uh, so Steve I wonder if you can give us sort of some more basic information about glaucoma so what exactly is glaucoma and again the sort of hallmarks of how these patients present
1: yeah so glaucoma is an optic neuropathy and we're not entirely sure of what causes it although it's been 10 years since I studied for my exams in glaucoma and you know how medicine moves on but as far as I'm aware there's there's still no definite idea of what causes it we know that Pressure is important in the treatment of glaucoma, but it is irrelevant in the diagnosis. So that's the big one that people say is raised pressure in the eye, and it isn't necessarily raised pressure. People have high pressure and no glaucoma, and people have normal pressure and have glaucoma. So it is usually a very slowly progressive condition where you get loss of the nerve fibers, uh, the optic nerve, and this causes classic field defects which obey the horizontal midline. When you look at a nerve on ophthalmoscopy, you're looking at the cup and the colour and the contour. So you imagine that the the cup is the sort of space in the middle where all the fibres have piled down this hole in the back of the eye. So if you've got a very small disc, those million fibres will cram in and there'll be no cup at all. If you've got someone who's very short-sighted, their disc may be two millimetres across. You know, it's normally about 1.5. In which case, those million fibres will form a thin rim all the way around the edge of the disc. But that is not glaucoma. So a thin rim is not necessarily glaucoma if they've got a big disc. What you're looking for is thinning and graying of the uh, nerve fiber layer. So you're bouncing light off the sclera, which is white. So in optic atrophy, where you've lost all the neurons, axons, and blood supply, it is bright white. Whereas in glaucoma, you lose some of them, and it tends to be gray. Uh, An infrotemporal is quite a common place to lose um, the fibers. So when you look at the disc, you're looking, the, the disc is following the isn't rule. So inferior is greater than the superior, rim, greater than the nasal, greater than the temporal. So it's one thing you'll look at and just look at the color as well. If you're presented with a field plot, then you will see, uh, hopefully you'll see a, a cross with lots of tiny dots on it. Then there'll be a black circle, which is the optic nerve, which is your blind spot where they didn't see any um, points at all. And then often you'll see these defects which obey the horizontal midline. So patches over a nasal step or a temporal wedge. Um, So that would be the classic early glaucoma. And of course, as it progresses, then you get the tunnel vision with loss of vision all around the outside. So it's worth just having a look at visual field plots. Google them. Once you've seen one, you won't miss it again.
0: Yeah, brilliant. And and that can be helpful looking at a number of other pathologies uh you know including those we've seen with uh, or discussed previously in terms of homonymous hemianopia or bitemporal hemianopia these sorts of things where knowing the patterns of of visual loss is just critical and and even you you can have a good stab at at a suggested diagnosis even from taking the history without even examining the patient
1: and i think in terms of examination they're not going to ask you to do much more because you're not going to be able to check the pressure of the eye And if you're going to check the pressure, you really ought to know the corneal thickness because that makes a difference and you're certainly not going to be given that to do. Um, So I would suspect it will be um, this person has presented bumping into things. They're going to be elderly. um, So they're going to be in their 60s, 70s. Their vision may well be fine. Uh, You may be presented with a field plot which will show the classic fields. They may have an RAPD. And when you look at the discs of each eye, you will see that one eye has, you know, thinning of the rim, and the other eye looks normal. So that would be the, the way I would, you know, if I was testing you guys, that's what I would do. And it wouldn't be subtle because it can be very subtle. So I think it would need to be fairly banded or for you guys to pick it up because that's
0: not your job to pick up open angle glaucoma. Absolutely. So whilst this is, whilst this may not be a uh, something which we we may commonly see in paces, but this is again something where we could. Name it as a possible differential diagnosis. So, we may not actually often see these types of patients, but naming them as a possible differential diagnosis, I think, would still be, uh, still be relevant. And one thing that you mentioned there was the, the cup to disc ratio as well. I think may, that might be something that we, we may be expected to comment on if it was a, a barn door case. So, maybe I wonder, Steve, could you just touch on that for us? What's the relevance of a, of a cup to disc ratio?
1: Yeah. So, it goes back to that you think you've got a million fibers going down a tube. So if, if the tube is very big, those million fibres will form a, a small rim. So the, the cup, so the, the top to bottom may be quite large, and the disc may also, so, so the cup will also be big as well as the disc. So the disc will be big, there'll be a thin rim, and you may have a cup to disc ratio of 0.8. So 80% of the nerve is actually nothing. There's a gap there. The fibres run around the outside. If it's a very, very small disc, then there may be no up there at all so it'll be zero or 0.1 so only 10 percent of the disc is where those fibers sort of curve in as they disappear down the back of the eye when you're using an ophthalmoscope, it's it's uh the, the field of view is absolutely shocking uh, and it's massively magnified so for most average eyes if you get very very close to the di- the eye and you can see the disc you will just about see the disc in your field of view So if you can see the disc easily within your field of view, it's a long sighted disc, it's small, it shouldn't have a cup. If you find you can't even see the disc with the ophthalmoscope top to bottom, you know, it's filling your field of view and you're as close as you can get to the eye, because that's the number one problem with the ophthalmoscope, then it's likely to be a short sighted person. So again, if they're wearing specs, it's worth just eyeballing their specs. Is their face squashed behind their lenses? They're short sighted. Are their eyes big? So think of Professor Trelawney. If their eyes are big, then they're hypermetropic and they're more likely to get things like angle closure glaucoma. If if the eyes are small, they're more likely to be myopic. And some thought perhaps there's more glaucoma in myopes, but maybe they just turn up to hospital more often than we, we detect them. But they're more at risk of things like retinal detachment.
0: Yeah, fantastic. Okay, I think that's more or less pretty much everything I had to say on glaucoma, given that as I said before, it may not be something which we're often required to see, but important to know these things from a from a differential diagnosis perspective. <laughs> And so moving on to our next differential diagnosis, I thought we'd talk about age-related macular degeneration next. And whilst typically clues in the name, it's, it's a bit of a Ron Seal diagnosis. You know, they're going to be older patients.
1: Yeah, age-related macular degeneration, absolutely. It's classic history of, you know, reduced vision centrally, both distance and reading. Um, remember, if you can get the eye to see, either with a pinhole distance or reading, then the retina is likely to be okay. Uh, So these patients have central visual loss. So they're aware of it quite early on. Distortion is a very common problem. Uh, There's lots of these people around, as you've said. Uh, They've got lots of time and they don't mind coming and sitting for exams. So, um, yeah, absolutely. Um, So when you're examining them, uh, you may find actually a lot of them have had their cataracts removed because they're quite elderly. And that will be good for you because you'll get a a really good view of the back of the eye. So as always, I'd start with the disc, colour cut, contour. I would do four positions of gaze, swinging out and back. Um, so always come back to the disc so that if you find something, you can tell them it's temporal, it's infranasal. The worst thing is to see something and then forget where you are inside the eye. So be systematic, four positions of gaze. And then if your mic- if your ophthalmoscope has it, there should be something called a macular stop, which is this much smaller light. And the advantage of that is you get a lot of reflections when you try and look centrally in the eye. So you want the smallest macular stop. And then you can move from the disc temporally or you can get them to look at your light. The problem with getting them to look at your light is they're now in control and often you find everything disappears behind reflexes. So if you can, just very slowly arc around and slightly down to find the fovea. And what you should see, and it's worth practicing this on each other, is a bright pinprick of light. It's, I mean, I remember the first time I ever saw the foveal pit as an optometry student. It was quite a remarkable sight, but it was like a pinprick of light that seemed to sit in front of the retina. So that's what you're really looking for. And what you'll see is loss of that in early macular degeneration. You'll see whitish balls or lumps. You won't see them as lumps because you've got one eye, so you've got no stereoscopic vision. And these are all sitting on the outer layer of the retina, so they're deep to the retina. And these are called drusen. So drusen, a very classic sign of macular degeneration. And then you get RPE changes, so the retinal pigment epithelium starts to get clumping of pigment. Um, you can get little fluid blisters at the back of the eye called pigment epithelial detachments. Again, wouldn't expect you to be picking those up with an ophthalmoscope. And then the real worry is any bleeding in the center. So dry macular degeneration, which is slowly progressive, can become wet. And by that, we mean bleeding. Blood vessels grow through and leak and bleed.
0: Yeah, brilliant. And. I think the, the key thing here, or at least what's different from the other diagnoses we've discussed, is that it's it's central visual loss. So they so it, it's going, to, as you mentioned at the start, your peripheral vision is much less good than, than your central vision. So this is going to yeah. be something where they will report very clear symptoms. In cases with something like this, it's not going to be a subtle sign, as you've mentioned as well. So they're likely to have either many drusen or you know potentially quite large drusen to make it r- very obvious yep. to you that, that yep. there's something to be found there just wanted to touch on one thing you mentioned steve that the retinal pigmentary epithelial changes how, how would we identify that reliably if we're performing fundoscopy
1: so you would see actual pigment clumping right at the center uh, or you may see patches missing so it looks pale so that there'll be this there'll just be this not tessellated appearance because a lot of people have a tigroid type fundus where you can see the choroidal pigmentation but but it'll be clumps of pigment or atrophy I and mean, when you see them you'll see them you'll be able to pick them up and, and the drusen can be discreet and smaller they can be quite large and soft as well so soft drusen
0: brilliant so moving on from there on to our next diagnosis now this is something which maybe apart from retinitis pigmentosa which they seem to want to include very often in paces is is something. Much more common, which you must see at l- on at least a daily yeah. basis, Steve, which is diabetic retinopathy. So yes, diabetic retinopathy. Absolutely, um, learn about that. And and
1: the way I would explain it is: there's really two things going on. There's leakage and blockage of vessels. So the vessels leak, and if they leak in the periphery, of course, the patient will notice nothing at all. But if they leak in the middle, so diabetic macular edema. That would be the most common cause of visual loss in patients with diabetes. Um, it's more common in type 1, and the longer you've had it, the more likely you are to get these problems. So that, so that's leakage. Leakage we used to treat with lasers through some dark arts, and we didn't quite know what we were doing and how much power was enough, and basically people, we stopped them losing sight, but it wasn't particularly good. Now we have anti-VEGF injections, and they stop the leakage, and they're fantastic. So that's leakage. Blockage, on the other hand, causes the retina to become ischemic. And, the, and I say to patients, the SOS signal is not spelled SOS, it's spelled V-E-G-F. So you get vascular endothelial growth factor, which also makes vessels leaky, but it makes them grow. And these vessels are, are friable and weak. They grow in the wrong planes. So they grow out of the retinal surface. They grow into the gel. They then bleed. So you get vitreous hemorrhage. And then after bleeding, they fibrose and they contract, and that pulls the retina off. So the worst cases I deal with are the young patients with diabetes who have had difficult teenage years, and their retinas are just being pulled off the wall of their eye by scar tissue. Lots of different ways of categorizing diabetic retinopathy. I quite like the mild, moderate, and severe, non-proliferative diabetic retinopathy, where mild is mild, you know, um, little microaneurysms, little dot hemorrhages, exudates. You may get the odd cotton wool spot, which is a, a microinfarct, and it's on the surface layer of the retina. So the, the retina is actually 10 layers thick, uh, and you see what you look for, and you look for what you know. And if you look carefully enough, you'll see that cotton wool spots cover the vessels, which are, are deeper. Um, the exudates tend to be within the retinal layers, as are most of the hemorrhages. My, uh, so that's mild, moderate, more of the same and a bit worse. The, the other one, really important one, is the um, severe non proliferative So that's what you would call the pre proliferative and the useful rule there is the four-two-one rule. So big blot hemorrhages in four quadrants. So these are full thickness hemorrhages. They're bigger than the dot hemorrhages. Venous beading. So veins go like sausages when they pass through uh, ischemic retina in two quadrants. And then these things called IRMA, intraretinal microvascular anomalies in one. I struggle to teach my middle grades what IRMA are, so I wouldn't worry too much about that. So severe non proliferative is something that's worth looking at. And then, of course, the proliferative. we have two categories. So NVD, new vessels on the disc, and NVE, new vessels elsewhere. Um, So new vessels on the disc, if you go to the disc, you'll see these vessels, and you won't be able to focus on all of them at the same time. So the important thing is if you focus on the disc, some of them will be in focus. As you pull the focus back towards yourself, you'll see they stay in focus because they're sitting out of the disc. If you've got the luxury of binocular viewing systems like I have, you can see them in three-dimensional space coming forward. So it's very difficult for you guys, easy for me. And then, of course, new vessels elsewhere. So it's worth, when you do your journey around the eyes, to follow vessels out and then follow another vessel back. And they tend to grow between the perfused and non-perfused areas. And again, they grow out into the retina. Of course, the other classic, which I guess would be a good curveball for RP, uh, would be PRP, so laser scars. So that would be a good one for them to test you. These are man-made; they're pigmented when they've been there a while. They're usually well spaced. So we now have these grid lasers, um, which causes very fantastically um, perfect pattern of burns, whereas you used to see just burns everywhere. They form grids, so they're easy to spot, And and they're usually all the way around the back of the eye. So we don't usually grid an area of the retina; it's full PRP or nothing. So you'll see them all the way around the back of the eye and of course people with prp may well have field defects and if they've had prp in both eyes then they may have absolute field defects with both eyes open and not be able to drive. so again spacing is important so hopefully the, the the defects don't overlap in each eye other things for diabetics would be regular injections and then
0: surgery for them yeah fantastic and I guess one of the things which we've touched on for our other our other diagnoses, which may be slightly more difficult with diabetes, is the exact pattern of, of visual loss. So is there a conventional pattern that you see of visual loss in these patients? Or, or again, is it a case of where the retinopathy is affecting?
1: So the, yeah, the most common would just be blurred vision. So diabetic macular edema. So your central vision is knocked off. Um, so the vision is maybe halfway down the chart, maybe a bit worse and um, peripheral visual loss you may get peripheral visual loss with a bleed in the eye uh, initially but then it all becomes murky so they lose all vision it becomes very very misty in terms of hemianopic type defects or glaucomatous type defects they don't they just don't present with that it's just generally blurred vision or no vision i mean even with the laser even with laser all around the back of the eye they've lost maybe 50 percent of their peripheral field they will not be aware with one eye open that they've lost vision i mean our eyes compensate so much it's incredible
0: yeah brilliant and and just again to touch on something which you may find in, in taking a history from these patients in in a station five type scenario you know these patients will probably tell you they're diabetic and it's important to ask how well controlled that is would you would you say as well it's often made worse by the other conventional cardiovascular risk factors such as high blood pressure smoking high, high cholesterol
1: yeah, smoking for sure is a real big issue. I think overall you're three times more likely to go blind, lose your sight if you smoke. The other really interesting thing about smokers I've I've come across over the years is that they have this silent retinopathy. So almost nothing looks like it's happening and all hell is breaking loose. You do a fluorescein and they've got massive dropout. So there's something with smoking that works very nicely with diabetes to maximally destroy your blood circulation.
0: Okay, and moving on to our last diagnosis and by far the rarest of uh, all the ones we we're going to discuss today but uh, again strangely one of the ones which the royal college of physicians likes to bring back again and again uh, and that's retinitis pigmentosa and and like we said before this diagnosis is one which is is perfect for exams because they are patients with established Uh, signs which are unlikely to change and um, and can be brought in yeah very short notice at the last minute but as we've discussed this is a very rare uh, condition so I wonder if you can give us uh, just the basics on on retinitis pigmentosa from your perspective Steve
1: yeah well it's uh, this is one of those areas where when I was training it was retinitis pigmentosa and now we know it's a collection of, goodness knows, 60-plus conditions. Always the shame about genetic treatments is you need a specific key for every single lock. Um, but generally speaking, these people present uh, usually uh, younger age um, with progressive peripheral visual field loss. Um, and they are aware of it. They bump into things, etc. And when you look at the back of the eye, you get uh, these bone spicules, which are dark black, sort of thread-like pigment spots um, they can be just around the vessel blood vessels uh, they can be just in one sector or they can be widespread but what you also want to be looking for is the disc is often waxy and pale and the vessels are very thin so vascular attenuation so if you want to get honors then don't just go for the bone spickle pigmentation say i think that the disc looks waxy and pale and there's arteriolar attenuation because they do have that as
0: well yeah fantastic and the other thing which or has often come out in the hist- in the history of, of taking these patients or at least what i found from my research for this is that is is low light levels makes it worse it's sort of a night a night blindness as well
1: yeah absolutely because our, our central vision is very much about bright color detail and our peripheral vision is very much you know navigation um, poor lighting conditions, being able to see in those lighting conditions, it's predominantly rod mediated. So yeah, absolutely with RP night blindness is one of
0: the issues. And again, part of the history as well, the retinitis pigmentosa is a, is, is more of a syndrome really because it, it, it now encompasses or is found in so many of these extremely rare uh, syndromes and diseases, yeah. um, which, which, I think uh, that it's it's it would be too much to cover in this one uh, episode yeah. particular, but maybe I'll do sort of a, a, an, an addendum to this episode myself, just to talk through the the actual uh, individual conditions, which or other things you could look out for. But again, just asking about family history may be helpful. At least then you're signalling to the examiner um, that you've got an idea that this is a genetic uh, predisposition or a, gen- a genetically inherited condition.
1: I mean, it's a huge area. Now I'm getting bigger by the year by the looks of it with various different forms being identified
0: amazing i don't actually think there's much more to be said on on retinitis pigmentosa from that perspective there are there are other things we could discuss with regard to the the exact uh, different syndromes or diseases but i think actually i'll probably just record sort of a 10 minute job just talking about those myself anything else you thought maybe we could touch on or i think i think we've covered pretty much everything i thought of really with those diagnoses
1: I think my my only advice in walking into a station is just to grab as many clues as you can from the minute you walk through. So if they're wearing specs, definitely look at their specs and and make sure you know whether they're short-sighted or long-sighted. Just keep calm, really. Uh, Taking a good history will set you up for whether this is a one-eyed thing or a two-eyed thing, which means it's probably not a two-eyed thing. It's probably a brain thing. So you switch to more neurological causes of visual loss. But if it's a one-eyed thing, then start thinking about, okay, was this central, peripheral, central? You're thinking of cataracts, diabetes. You're thinking of macrogeneration, peripheral, maybe glaucoma. So I think just as you go in, just build up as many clues as you can just from looking at the patient.
0: Yeah, absolutely fantastic. So I think that's pretty much all we had to say on uh, gradual visual loss and uh, fundoscopy findings. but. That does mean that it's time for our regular feature, which is Quiz the Consultant. Don't forget, pasttest.com has got you covered for this topic with their online revision resource. I know that trying to get into ophthalmology clinics is an absolute nightmare, but over at Pastest, they've got a collection of fundoscopy images perfect to practice your interpretation ready for that tricky examination station. Once you've seen these pictures and memorized the appearance, they're pretty much sorted for your eye revision. So to get access, click on any of the links labeled past test in the show notes. But for now, let's get back to the show. It's time for the greatest regular non-medical quiz to feature on a medical podcast. It's Quiz the Consultants. Uh, So welcome to Quiz the Consultant. This is the quiz where our consultants take on a specialist subject of their own choosing on a topic which cannot be related to medicine. And so, Steve, you mentioned at the top of the show, but what is your specialist subject and why have you chosen it?
1: I've chosen, in inverted commas, stroke, cajoled into choosing sports psychology. Uh, And I've chosen that because I'm absolutely fascinated with surgery and what makes a good surgeon. And one thing I learned on my MBA is when you talk about thinking outside the box, my question is, which box are you talking about? So I'm trying to get together my thoughts on uh, what makes a good surgeon from a from a practical perspective, to a decision making, to a performance under pressure, to a heuristics, personality, the whole lot. So it just so happens I've started writing my the box that involves what you can see down a microscope. And for that, sports psychology has a lot to offer us as surgeons in terms of performing under pressure and making decisions and it's truly fascinating.
0: Yeah, brilliant. And I mentioned briefly to you before we started the recording, but even just in, in the limited bit of research I did for the for the quiz, it's a real rabbit hole you can get down if, if you really choose to. There's so much to uh, to look at, read about, think about, and apply to, to our everyday lives, especially as sort of the type A medical community. Uh, there's a lot to apply. <laughs> so with with that in mind, I have written a quiz on the topic of sports psychology Okay. albeit with probably with a lot less detail than you may have looked at in your book, but also maybe looking at looking at maybe some more niche things, which uh, you, you may well have come across or may not have. So this is how we play. It's nice and relaxed. There are 10 questions in total. You can get two points if you get the answer without use of the multiple choice options. If you need a bit of a helping hand, you can take the multiple choice options. And if you get it correct, you'll get one point. Okay. So 10 questions on sports psychology question number one the drive theory was an early suggested association between athlete arousal and performance what was the suggested relationship between the two according to drive theory
1: so i don't know specifically about drive theory however that fits into something called the catastrophe model so what happens with arousal and performance is that performance increases slightly as arousal increases to a plateau point, and then it starts to decrease
0: thereafter. Yeah. Okay. So, <laughs> so you've answered my second question, which was what is the what is the mod, uh, the arousal with catastrophe theory? So, what I'm going to do, I'm going to give you the uh, multiple choice for drive theory.
1: But did you, am I going to speak on the catastrophe model because that's fascinating? Oh well,
0: we, we'll talk again on the catastrophe because that is one of the other things. So, this is a, a person to the drive theory, which, which was an earlier at least from my reading, an earlier theory, which then led on to that. Is it that uh, increasing arousal is linearly associated with increased performance? Is it that the lowest levels of arousal are associated with the highest levels of performance? Or is it that arousal has essentially no effect on performance levels?
1: I'd say it's almost none of those, because what it should do is a, a a linear increase initially to a plateau and then falling off afterwards there's another thing called the eyes off which is the individual zone of optimal function now this is fascinating because some athletes perform at their best at low levels of arousal some at intermediate levels and some at high so your tennis player who's about to fall apart under pressure is going to step up his game and perform very well it's complicated it's not it's not black and white like medicine can be
0: (laughs) so i'm going to give you the or the answer that i found because they a lot of these things come with graphs as well don't they yeah, they did. And so, they what do. I found of drive theory, because it was a very early incarnation, what I or the graph that I yeah. found was that it's essentially a straight line up. I think they basically said the more yeah. stress you get, the higher your performance will be. Which, in reference to everything that you just said about those other theories, which came later, is obviously outdated.
1: Yeah, I think most of us would struggle if we're put under more and more pressure until we break.
0: I I'm going to give you one point for the first question, and then I'm going. <laughs> you've then you've then covered the second two questions which were the second question okay so one point for that the second question was which theory is described as when an athlete's arousal increases performance increases to a certain point after which performance decreases gradually with increasing arousal
1: yeah so the catastrophe model will explain that so if you imagine a graph um so vertically you've got performance going up and horizontally you've got arousal or stress and then coming out of the graft is cognitive anxiety or fear of failure. So when cognitive anxiety is zero. And I've realized I've had trainees who I st- st- say borrow my confidence. And I've always had that expression, never known why. Well, now I know why. Because when I'm in the room, their cognitive anxiety is zero. So at zero cognitive anxiety, performance increases a bit with stress, plateaus, and then decreases a bit with stress. If you increase cognitive anxiety to that though, you get a gentle increase as stress goes up to a point and then it collapses it just goes vertical down and this is that classic you know when you see a sportsman completely lose it and i've seen people in theater uh, just get to a point where they they can't do simple things like sutri. they just completely fall apart so i think it's really important actually um in terms of surgical performance is to be very aware of your cognitive anxiety
0: yeah and then so yeah definitely two points for that one i think <laughs> thank you and then uh The third question, can you try and describe the graph for the eyes-off theory or the inverted U theory?
1: Yeah, so the the eyes-off, as I say, I find really fascinating. So um, what they did is they took lots of athletes and did various questionnaires on them about emotional responses to various pressures and stresses. Um, And they realized that some athletes perform well at low levels of physiological arousal, some at intermediate and some at high. So this is your, as I say, classic back against the wall tennis player, everything to play for, ups their game. And I think this may be where the whole term in the zone comes from, to be honest. I'm not sure about that, but I think it is. So I'm aware personally that my favorite theater list is a Friday afternoon. Everyone wants to get home. It's fully booked. We've had three emergencies walk through the door. Suddenly, the NHS has, it's very difficult to get incentives in the NHS. You can't incentivise people by going home early or paying them more. You're in this weird system where there's no incentive. But on a Friday afternoon, when it's a full list and everyone wants to get home, there's now a time incentive. So that means the list starts on time, the turnover's good, and I find myself making surgical decisions quite quickly, and this would fill in with heuristics and shortcuts in thinking. And I just feel great. If I show up to a theatre and we're half an hour, an hour late because things aren't happening and the turnaround is slow, I find myself operating at a slower pace where i'm almost overthinking things and I, it just it doesn't feel in the zone
0: fantastic okay question number 4 moving on to sli- something slightly different there's a, an eponymous phenomenon where someone reacts to coaches or supervisors high expectations and improves their performance on the basis of their coaches expectations do you know the, the the eponymous name of this effect
1: that's really interesting i don't know that effect i think we were i thought we were going down the imposter syndrome route but we're not doing that so i don't know the answer to that
0: you can take the multiple choice options
1: let's go for a multiple choice then uh
0: so yeah it's an eponymous sort of eponymous name is it the the pygmy effect the pygmalion effect the piggy bank effect or the pig ugly effect
1: i'd go for piggy bank
0: (laughs) Unfortunately, it is the Pygmalion effect it's where yeah, uh, an athlete or, or uh, someone who's being supervised has high expectations given on them by a coach and subsequently raises their game as a result of the, of the supervisor's uh, expectations. And the, yeah. there is an opposite as well, which is called the the Golem effect or Golem effect, where, right. where someone drops their performance as a result of low expectations from their coach, which I found sort of interesting.
1: That is interesting, actually, because um, it, it, I guess it depends on if you're giving that that athlete confidence. So I believe you believe in me. I can see how that would help. If there are a low eyes off performer, though, that too much pressure may not be good. But anyway, that's interesting. Thank you. I learned something there.
0: Fantastic. So next question. We're talking about mental toughness. Yeah. A big area in sports psychology. And uh, is, so from what I found, it's defined as how people effectively deal with challenges, stress and pressure. Um, and I found one study by Crust and Clough from 2005, and they used a four C's model. So I was going to ask you, can you name any of their C's uh, that they had in, in regard to mental toughness? Uh, and I said, I'd give you two points if you can get three of them, and I'll give you one point if you can get one of them.
1: Wow. What I've read a little bit about mental toughness is uh, often reframing. So choosing to ignore the negative and focus on the positive. So I'm just trying to work around to a C. So reframing things, having confidence could be one way of doing it. Yeah, confidence is one. And then in terms of focusing, so you
0: focus on the positive, not negative. So concentration is probably a C. It, oh, the con- concentration isn't. But you, you've basically said one of them, you said about framing. And so one of them is seeing challenges as opportunities.
1: Yeah, okay.
0: So, So you've got two. You've only got to get one more for the two points.
1: Well, practicing competence, so relying on your practice to get you through. So
0: competence could be one. It's not one of the ones they've got down. Okay, go for it. I don't know the four Cs. That's all right. You still got one point. So, and, you know, this is from one study, which I ended up looking at. So they've said yep. feeling in control when oh, confronted control. with, with okay. uh, obstacles yep. and co- commitment to goals is the other one, which they came up
1: with. Okay, yeah.
0: Okay. Uh, okay. So now, question number six, I'm uh, I'm describing another theory now, uh, proposed by Ryan and Deci or D D C D E C I in 2017. Okay. I'm going to describe it, and I want you to try and uh, name the theory if you can. So okay. it's based on our inherent tendency towards growth. This theory suggests that activity is most likely when an individual feels intrinsically motivated, has a sense of volition over their behavior, and the activity feels inherently interesting and appealing.
1: Yeah. So let's take the 50-50. Let's take the multiple choice. Sorry, it's not
0: 50-50. Okay. So is it external validation theory? Is it self-determination theory? That sounds more likely. Is it goal-driving theory? Or is it intense excitement theory? Goal driving, I think I'd go for it. Is self determination theory? It is self determination, right? Okay. Internal locus of control. I mean that all of these things I found. There's lots of interchangeable, uh, lots of interchangeable vocab. Yeah. Okay. Now onto goal setting. Yep. One set of principles of goal setting is proposed by Locke and Latham, who suggest a five principle model for goal setting and again some of these are a little bit similar to the last one that we just that we discussed so i want you to name as many of the five principles of goal setting as proposed by them if you can
1: so i, I actually do goal setting in my surgery i've realized since reading it so you you chunk up your surgery into small bits and then you have an aim a specific aim for what you want to achieve so specific target um a specific time yep. um, to achieve that as well a measure of success so what is the measure of success of achieving your goal so it's pointless having goals
0: without any sort of benchmark to them i'll give you one point you got clarity which is there you said setting clear goals you said you've got to uh, somehow try and measure it and and put a yardstick in it so feedback was one of them the other ones which they said is setting challenging goals yeah securing commitment to the goals Yeah, And then I guess I'll give you the two points because you said chunking it down into other things. And and the last one is TART's complexity. So considering the complexity and challenge of the tasks as well. Okay, question number eight.
1: My word. It feels like we're scraping the barrel here of my knowledge.
0: (laughs) (laughs) This is positivepsychology.com. Suggest five ways to address performance anxiety, understand and manage their pressure. They're quite arbitrary again. So I'll give you uh, as well, as many guesses as you can get in terms
1: of managing anxiety that so that they often talk about in the moment management rather than before so you know good mental hygiene good sleep mindfulness or you know silence taking the time whatever are all important but in the moment so some would be physiological like breathing so um, holding an expiration
0: breathing's one
1: and then how you focus your attention so try and focus on the positives of your situation rather than the negatives. Um, Can I give me, give me some MCQs on it and I'll,
0: okay. I'll, well, I I actually, because it's uh, just like name a list. I didn't write any, any extras, but what I will say, I'll give you one point because you named a couple of them there. So what they've said is self-talk. So, you know, Oh, of course. Yeah. Self-talk. Yeah. Almost coaching your way through the situation. They've talked about visualization. So, uh, so imagery
1: um it, yeah so that's one of the ones that you practice outside of the theater uh-huh, uh-huh. so you would imagine your so imagery is absolutely fascinating lays is neuroplasticity it lays down connections they use it in rehabilitation so i would have taken that as one not in the moment okay and i was trying to okay. think of the ones in the moment so there's yeah there's imagery there's goal setting there's routines performance routines there's
0: yeah okay you, uh, you've there, na- now you've named all the stuff which was on there <laughs> on that one
1: yeah so i was i was just trying to do the stuff while you're actually in the moment yeah, yeah.
0: no i mean you've named all this stuff so they've then said visualization and imagery and then they've said pre-performance routines as well so yeah you've got a lot yeah. of them there and goal setting as well yeah and now the, the ninth question is on imagery and visualization yeah so they've given uh, four suggestions for varying situations that you can employ imagery and visualization which can help you uh help you overcome anxiety or or obstacles so what different situations do they suggest you visualize to approach and overcome general problems as you approach them
1: so well the thing about imagery is it only works if you've physically done the task for instance if you're stressed about serving then I need to imagine myself doing that, having done it in immense detail. I mean, it really is in immense detail. You, you don't just say I threw the ball in the air and I hit it. You know, you've got a sight, sound, smells. You know, you know you're in imagery if, you're, if your adrenaline's going. So it has to, be, has to be something you've done. It has to be done in immense detail and played over and over again. Um, so it has to be high quality. It has to be repetitive. It has to be detailed.
0: Yeah, you've definitely got two of them. One was it was visualize the problem being solved and visualize well, yeah, visualize the problem being solved was 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 definitely one of them. They've they've also said just visualize the problem. I think probably that comes up with what you said, you know, the precise detail of looking at the problem, what is it from every single angle.
1: Yeah, and the research is poor in this because a lot of the papers don't actually tell you what they were asking students to imagine now i used to get the train to an st1 post uh, in bournemouth and i would sit on the train imagining cataract surgery and give it before i'd done complications just throwing in complications i'd sit there for hours um, but it's phenomenal because you you get as i say it's as good as physically practicing it's been shown to be as good as physically practicing and there's neuroplasticity so functional mri shows you know new pathways being laid down new parts of the brain lighting up it's ap- it's absolutely phenomenal so anyone who does any practical task. Central lines, whatever it is, imagery, absolutely fantastic.
0: That's amazing. I'm definitely going to be doing some of that for my uh, angiography practice. <laughs>
1: yeah, anything practical. Just imagine it, imagine it, imagine it.
0: Yeah. So you got the two points for that. Last question. Okay. I don't know if you've come across this theory. Reversal theory? Have you come across that at all? Reversal theory? No, t- tell me about it a bit. Oh, okay. Well, this you may be able to pull on some common sense vocab for this one. Yeah. So it's it's a it's a structural theory looking at personality and motivation and it's made up by four pairs of opposing values or motives that might be held by a single person so so basically it's it's four dichotomies of opposing thoughts or values Okay, I guess it's one achievement and failure, for instance. Uh, that, that would be one, although it isn't. I was going to give you another example. So what, the one which, I, uh, which is actually part of it was um, one end of the... Under the domain of orientation, the two opposing ends are... Internal and external. Well, exactly. So it's self and others. Yeah, exactly. And so I was going to say, uh, I'm going to give you one of the words, and I want you to guess the the opposite the opposite word
1: let's do that then that sounds good uh
0: one of the words is um conforming uh
1: non-conformance or is it rebellion
0: you got it rebellious is the word so that's for one next one last the very last question and the domain is playful uh serious <laughs> absolutely correct <laughs> And that is the end of Quiz the Consultant. And overall, with with a few sort of hijinks thrown in, yeah. we have got a score of 14 out of 20, which I think is a, a perfectly respectable score.
1: That's not bad. Thank you. That was fun.
0: Brilliant. So, listeners, that brings us to the end of Quiz the Consultant and also the end of the podcast. So. That only leads us to pay a huge debt of gratitude to Mr. Steve Lash, consultant ophthalmic surgeon at University Hospital Southampton. Steve, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast.
1: It's been great fun, and thank you for this work you're doing. I think it's brilliant.
0: Thank you very much. Well, it's made by people like you giving up your, your valuable time uh, just to help out some listeners who are assisting their exams. But listeners, that is the end of another show. Don't forget to like, follow, and subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a five-star review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, wherever you get them. We always love to hear from you, so feel free to get in touch. You can do that on Twitter. It's at Pre-Paces Podcast. If you really want to go above and beyond, you can support the show. It's buymeacoffee.com slash Podcast. But for now, we are just about out of time. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time on the PrePaces Podcast.